Well, this is the last series before, of course, we have our Advent series, but this is the last one that we kind of select from the scriptures to, to look at. And of course, this will be my last one in my time here at Rosebud Covenant. I thought, what would be more important to communicate? What should I communicate in this last series? And the beauty of it is that Peter's done all the work for me. Because in his second Peter, he has given his last words as he was giving to those that he loved in his broad community of faith. And so I think this is a, a wonderful place to, to, to look at together. And uh, some question that this is that Peter is the writer of this epistle, but it, it, at least historically, it's put in the canon as Peter as being the author of this great book. So let's pray. Now, gracious God, we thank you for the beloved disciple Peter who, facing the, the end of his life, he, he saw fit to, to give us encouragement and give us warning that the church that would leave the apostolic witness would be strong and vital and alive. And we trust that, Father, down through the ages. And even now, as we seek to be the church of Jesus Christ in our world today, may we be the church, as he describes for us. Amen. It's very interesting to, to hear people comment on the last phrases or last statements or things they say at the end of their life. Now, I'm not dying that I'm aware of, but it's my last time being here. It's coming up pretty soon. But there's kind of interesting statements. These are just general statements of life. George Carlin, the reason I talk to myself is because I'm the only one whose answers I accept. <laughs> Raheen Farouk, ugly truths are the biggest source of indigestion in humans, which is true. A bunch of them for Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, there was a baroness that they couldn't stand each other. And they were at a party, and of course, uh, Winston would drink quite heavily, and, he's, and he says to this baroness, I may be drunk, miss, but in the morning I will be sober, and you will still be ugly. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, I can resist everything except temptation. How about that one? Albert Hubbard, do not take too life too seriously. You'll never get out of it alive. How about that one? Lawrence Figueredi, if you're too open-minded, your brains will fall out. And then Winston, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. How about that one? Here's some people who gave, they were final remarks in their lives. Notre Dame, the famed Notre Dame, said, tomorrow I'm no longer going to be here. Well, that's not very profound. Beethoven says, friends, applaud, the comedy is over. Isn't that an interesting statement? Applaud. The comedy is over. He saw that as his life. Churchill, I am bored with it all. How would you like at the end of your life to say, I'm just bored with it all? Martin Luther made an interesting statement in his final thing that was penned before his death. He said, we are beggars, that is true. We are beggars, that is true. What it means to be human being, from Martin Luther's point of view, we are utterly dependent on God's grace. Our merits, of any merits, is insufficient to win our favor with God. So before we come to Christ, it is really true. We are beggars, and that is true. Jesus, when he died, the last words he gave for us were, it is finished. It is finished. In his death comes the ability to us, for us to experience and begin new life. I appreciate when my dad was dying in a coma, and I've mentioned this before, before he, he woke up, he was many days, many weeks in a coma and woke up and sang the song, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the sin of I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. 
And after he sang that song, he went back in the coma never to say another word before he died. What an affirmation as we were in the room with him of our dad who at his funeral said Harold was a, was a good man. And he was a good man. Far from perfect, but he was a good man. But anybody that makes that kind of exclamation in God's eyes is a great man. You have the closing addresses of very significant people in the Old Testament. Moses. He has two songs that he writes at the end of his life. You have Joshua, who at the end of his life, he gives, and they're what they, in both of them, their, their, their exclamations were to hold to the truth and faithfully follow God. That's the theme that they give, these great people of the Old Testament, as they were coming to the close of their ministry, hold to the truth and faithfully follow God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, that's the book near the end of his life, he writes, and it's a marvelous book. And he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom. This sounds almost identical to Peter's words. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Prepare it in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say things that their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and, and follow after myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discard your duty of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have a longing for his appearing. And those words really echo the words of Peter. Paul and Peter are on the same page when it comes to the words at the close of their life. At the time of Peter and Paul, when they wrote these wonderful letters, the final letters, they were waiting for their execution under Nero. Peter wrote Second. Peter, uh, shortly before his execution. In fact, he said that he was looking probably over the forum of, of Rome just waiting for them to come and take him. He knew that his death was near and it was predicted by Jesus himself. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And that expression was given and the decree was given by Nero to kill both Peter and Paul. And so we have this wonderful apostle of Jesus, probably one of the closest of the inner circle. And he has words for us, words for you and words for me. Today I just want to cover the subject of Christian character that was in the scripture reading that was read. We'll be looking at the other subjects in the next three Sundays. But it was written by, of course, Simon Peter. And why does he use his name Simon Peter? Because I think in this book, it talks about the transformation that occurs in our relationship to Christ. And Peter, before the resurrection, before he really understood the implications of the resurrection, we could call him Simon. That was his name. That was his name as a fisherman, the common name of Simon. But after he came to faith in Christ and after he experienced the resurrection, his name was changed to Peter, the rock. The rock, as Peter was the rock of the church. And so I think he wants both names there of this great man to show the transformation that occurred in his life. The purpose of the letter is for remembrance. 
In 2 Peter 3, he says, this is a second letter I'm writing to you to stir up in your minds at the reminder that you should always remember the words spoken by the holy prophets, the commands of the Lord, and the Savior spoken by your apostles. He refers to himself in the introduction of 2 Peter as a slave and an apostle. A bondservant is a slave. He refers to himself as a slave to Christ, one who does the biddings of the master. An apostle is one who is sent, and certainly he was sent. And he writes to all who have received faith that is common, that's ours, it's common. And that faith is the righteousness of God and the Savior Jesus Christ. This powerful message, that is the gospel, it's the righteousness of God that is imputed to us because of what Christ has done for us. And Timothy Keller gives a quote, this is how religion works. If I obey God, he will love and accept me. That is not how the gospel works. The gospel works, I am loved and I am accepted and therefore I wish to obey. I wish to obey. And that is the gospel, folks. It's not on the basis of any performance that we can do whatsoever or any inherent goodness we have. It's all based upon the goodness of Christ and what he's done for us as a free gift. He greets this great sprawling believers with the words grace and peace. Grace was the term used when the Romans greeted one another. The Roman Christians would say grace. And of course, we know that the Jews would always say shalom and peace. And that would be the greeting. And he wants these two groups to realize that the grace and peace brings them together. And he focuses on, first and foremost, Christian character. What kind of character do we have as the people of faith? As Peter goes to his grave, he wants people to understand Christian character. And this passage is, is best described, this first part, in Paul's writings in Philippians. He says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Folks, our responsibility as the people of faith is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But to assure us that God is at work in and through us to will and to work his good pleasure. The great Christian experience and journey is a partnership with God. It's always from the beginning to the end is a partnership. I like to say that God is always the greater partner. His work among us and in us and through us for his good pleasure is first and foremost. And we come alongside, as Peter calls himself, a slave, one who follows Christ. And we work if we think that the Christian life is going to be easy, if we think that it's just instant sanctification, we think God's grace is going to accomplish it all, we're fooling ourselves. For he says when godly character is birthed in us, it requires diligent work and diligent dependence upon God. So in verse 3 of chapter 1, the scripture that was read, he describes for us God's part. Do you want to know God's part? God's part is more important. His divine power his divine power has given us everything that's needed for godly living, everything we need to have. Folks, when we come to faith in Christ, all that we're going to receive of the resources to be able to walk a godly life are given to us. I was trying to think of an imagery. Maybe the imagery of is, a, is, a, is a fully equipped Lexus vehicle, fully equipped with everything that you could possibly imagine on that expensive vehicle. And that's who we are as Christians, and we spend the rest of our time trying to figure out the gadgets. We might have to read the book, or we might have to experiment, but we spend the rest of the time realizing all the things that are given to us that are there as equipped in that special vehicle. And we as Christians spend the rest of our lives figuring out who we are 
and we live into the resources that are already there by God at our disposal. That's critically important, folks. You're not going to receive anything more than is given to you via Christ and the Holy Spirit. We spend the rest of our lives figuring out what we have and who we are in Christ. And as those things birth in us the fruits of the Spirit that flow from the most notable resource that we have is the Holy Spirit given to us, the very Shekinah glory of God embodied in us. But His divine power also recognizes issues of identity, what we've been given. Ephesians 1 is the greatest passage of Christian identity that we ought to be so familiar with. We're chosen by God, folks. You're chosen by God. You're forgiven. We need forgiveness more than anything in our world. You're lavished with the grace of God. Do you realize He lavishes His grace on you? There's unconditional love. He always accepts you. You are in the family. He wants you to be pure and blameless. We are before God because of Christ, folks. He sees us as pure and blameless through the eyes and through the ministry of Christ. And He gives us the power over sin and evil in our lives by the power of the Spirit. All these resources are ours, folks, for the taking. God has and continues to do His part in the partnership in our lives. Every day we must realize that we need the presence and the strength of God in our lives every day. He's also given us unbelievable and precious and magnificent promises in chapter four, verse 4 of chapter 1. Most notable, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the single most important phrase that spans the whole Bible. Way back in the beginning to Abraham, when God brought him to a new land, made his magnificent promises, he promised him, I will never leave you or forsake you. And all through biblical history, we see people, we see that phrase over and over, and people in their times of need, God promises his presence. And as Jesus leaves, he says, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Nicole Kitchener has five promises we need to remember every day, folks. God loves you unconditionally. You are redeemed, and because of that, you have a place in the eternal kingdom. God formed you, and he knows you intimately. He has desires and plans for you, and he wants to give you his strength and his power every day. Folks, we, first of all, we walk on this unbelievable partnership in this journey. Peter says you have to understand who you are. You have to understand the promises that are given to you. You have to understand the very work of the Holy Spirit in your life every day, that the power of God, I need you. Oh, I need you, God, every day. And then he turns to us and says, you know, folks, I want to work with you. I find it magnificent that the God of the universe that created it all wants to work with you and me. That's amazing. That he wants to journey with us through life is amazing. It's absolutely astounding. And he talks about character building. Character is so important, folks. What's central is Christian character. The kind of people we become in this partnership. And he says, apply all diligence. Paul says, work out your salvation. Peter says, apply all diligence. If we think for any minute that the Christian life is going to be easy, we're fooling ourselves. Even after in Romans, after all that great passage where he talks about who we are in Christ and this powerful salvation, he says, now you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. The next thing he says, he talks about persecution. You might have peace with God, but we don't have peace with the world, folks. We don't have peace with the world. 
And it's going to require discipline and diligence in our lives. The beauty of it is that the Scripture presents for us ideals and it presents the real. It presents the ideal of what we ought to strive for, moral excellence, for example. But he also he recognizes that we're on a journey. And God is so gracious to forgive on the journey. Ideal and the real. Faith, he talks about in verse 5, is a quality that's birthed in us through Jesus Christ every day. It's that trust. It's that trust in Him. We depend on Him. But then He gives us these qualities. And listen carefully to the kind of things He wants to build into our lives. Goodness. Goodness is a moral quality. It's virtue. Folks, it's the courage to do what is right. It's the courage to do right. It means stand alone if necessary. I often say the voice, which voice do we listen to? And I'll talk more about that next week. The voice that we listen to. Where do we get these virtues? Where do we get these, these moral excellence principles that guide our lives? Of course, they're found most notably in the sacred word, the Bible. That's where we find what moral excellence looks like, folks. But stand alone if necessary because we have the courage to do what's right. I think that's one of the most powerful messages we need to hear today as Christians. The courage to do what is right and not really care what other people think. I don't really care what other people think. We don't live in this world to please them. We live in this world to please the one voice that speaks loudly in our lives, which is the voice of Jesus. He wants us to also have knowledge. You have to have understanding, personal correct understanding, primarily of Jesus. Then you have to have the practical knowledge and experience that you need to digest in your lives, often through observation and life experience. You have to have correct knowledge. In order moral correctness and moral goodness and virtue, you've got to know what they are. And it's the truth primarily about Christ. It all centers in Him and unpacks from there. You have to have self-control. Self-control is a hard one, not a self-indulgence lifestyle. Never allow anything to control us other than the Holy Spirit. We face such terrible challenges of addictions in our lives, so many people. It's so difficult. They're crippling addictions and be free from the crippling addictions in our lives and put ourselves, as Paul says, under the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, as Peter as well. He talks about perseverance, steadfastness, and stable. You're on firm footing in your faith. You walk the narrow path of life and people cannot push you off the path because you persevere. You strive and you're stable and you strive to follow Christ in your lives. Persevere. Self-control. Godliness. Godliness goes together with goodness. Moral lifestyle. Authentic moral lifestyle. Often called in the ancient world personal piety. It's the right perspective of God and the right perspective on others. If we're going to be people of character, we need to be people of good godliness. Authentic moral lifestyle. I love the one mutual affection. Mutual affection really is kindness. I think there's more than anything else we need to treat each other with kindness. I think it's one of the greatest virtues that we need in our, in our kingdom of God as well as the other kingdoms. We need kindness. Treat each other with respect. Treat each other in a healthy family like a member of the family. We treat each other in a healthy family like the member of the family. We bear each other's burdens. We bear the joy. We bear the pain with each other. There is nothing more important that flows from the Holy Spirit than kindness, kindness towards one another, even in our differences. 
And finally, I don't know if this is a pyramid of virtues, but at the top of it is love. I love the words of Soren Kierkegaard that says, seeking the highest good of another human being is what love is. Seeking the highest good of another human being that you're engaged in a relationship. And of course, God is the definer of what's ultimately good. Putting ourselves behind others. Others are always first. And that's what love is all about. And if these qualities, folks, are birthed in your life, you will be useful. Isn't it great to be useful? You will be fruitful in your life. But if you're not, you will be, look at the terms he uses, blind and short-sighted, forgot what Jesus has done for you and who you are. Folks, the term remembrance is one of the most important ones for us, how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget these, these virtues, these qualities, these promises that he wants to build into our lives. If these qualities are lived out in your life, folks, he says you'll have a firm footing and you will be assured, folks, of your entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Isn't that great? If you live these qualities out based upon the trust and faith, genuine faith, you'll have a firm footing in your life and you'll be assured to enter into the heavenly kingdom. Character for character is first. I had the wonderful privilege of working with the lead team over time. Different members, different people. But I say almost universally, they have been all people of great character. When we sit down as a committee of people and try to think about who might serve best in the life of the church, three things we look for. Character, chemistry, and competency. Quite frankly, folks, I think they're in that order. We look for people of character, and the lead team are people of great character. I can say that unequivocally. People of character is first and foremost in leadership. More important than all the competencies in the world. Chemistry is important. You've got to work together. You've got to have a team. But character is by far the most important virtue. The quality of Christian character. Folks, we have an assault today on Christian character all around us. I'm not anti-culture. Some people say, you're anti-culture. I'm not anti-culture at all. There's many things in our culture I really like that corresponds to our Christian faith, doesn't come in contact with our Christian faith. But folks, there's what the writers of the Bible call the world out there, governed by the evil one of Satan who's governing a world that's contrary to the purposes of God. And there is an assault going on on Christian virtues and Christian character. And that's beyond cultural issues. That is taking place. And so he says to us, folks, I am working with you, but you must pursue a life of genuine faith, courageous to stand against the crowd, to live as people who recognize the audience of one in our lives, which is God's voice, and riveted by the truth of the sacred word, the sacred word of the Bible. Be riveted by its truth. And so as we unpack Peter, as he was giving his final words to all those people he loves, he says, please, folks, first and foremost, First and foremost, recognize who you are. Recognize what I've given you, the great promises I've given you. And please be diligent to pursue the kind of character that honors and glorifies our Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we ask that you would give us the kind of faith that recognizes deeply what you've done for us. Father, help us and never forget that our righteousness is not based upon our performance. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us. But yet then, Father, you call us unto good works that you have ordained for us, that we live as the people of faith. 
Father, give us courage. Give us the unriveted ear that hears your voice and follows you obediently as your children. Amen.